0: Please take your Bibles and open them up to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And we are going to be meditating this morning. Those verses that were read earlier, Philippians 1, verses 12 to 18. So before we study the Word this morning, would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, your Word is true. And you give us the promise that all who delight in your Word day and night... Are blessed like trees planted by rivers of water. A fruit, their leaf does not wither, their fruit they bear in due season. And Father, I pray that today we would be like those trees, that we would soak up the truth of your word, that we would be shaped by it, that we may serve you with glad hearts. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Most of us here will know something of the Berlin Wall and its fall. Many of you, some of you, lived through it. Uh, some of us lived through it, but it was so early in our lives that we do not remember much of it. But most of you will have heard about it, even if you do not remember it, even if it did not, uh, you were not around when it happened. But in 1948, in 1948, Germany falls, and as a result of that fall after World War II, in light of the First World War and the Second World War, Germany was believed to be a country that could not be trusted to have its own independence. And so it was divided up. Into, uh, amongst the four powers, you had, there was, a, into four zones. There was an American zone, there was a French zone, a British zone, and a zone held by Soviet Russia, communist Russia. And the Soviets, as part of their zone, they held Berlin. The capital city, the major city, Berlin, was right there in its midst, and it too was divided into East Berlin, which was held by the Soviets, and West Berlin. And for the next 12 years, while there was a division between the two, there was still, uh, it was still allowed that access would be granted between East and West. And for those 12 years, thousands upon thousands upon thousands would leave Eastern Berlin for the freedom that existed in Western Berlin. In fact, they, the, the estimates are that millions of people moved from East Berlin to West Berlin during that time period. Up to a thousand, some, by some estimates, they estimated that about a thousand people a day were moving, making that move permanent in their lives from East Berlin under the, under the rule of the Soviet Union to that which was free in the west part of the city. And most of us know that in 1961, the wall was, began to be built. In fact, it was on August 13th, today, 1961, that the wall began to be built. Russia, by a man, the, the, the leader of Stasi's, Nicholas Kristof, Nikita Khrushchev, he uh, ordered during the night that there would be soldiers that would begin to erect barriers between East and West, no longer permitting free access and free movement between the two. And for almost 30 years, this barrier stood. And it became known as the Berlin Wall. It would grow and increase in size and height. And it became a symbol of the Soviet tyranny and oppression. But on November 9th, 1989, that wall fell. And it fell in a surprising way, in a way that no one expected. It didn't fall as a result of John F. Kennedy's Ich bin ein Berliner, I am a Berliner speech. It didn't fall because Ronald Reagan said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. It didn't even fall because David Hasselhoff sang about his love for freedom in front of the gates of West and East Berlin. It fell as a result of one man, most of us probably don 't even know his name. a man by the name of Harold Jagger. Harold Jager was a Stasi agent, grew up in the Soviet part of Berlin. His father was a Stasi agent, and as a young teenage boy, he had helped his father build the Berlin Wall. he had been a part of uh, the Soviet, not just the Soviet Union, but a part of their military, their, their, their police. He had been a part of them for his entire adult life, served courageously, served faithfully, and he was in leadership of the main gate separating East and West Berlin on November 9th, 1989. Early, earlier that day, a news announcement through TV had gone out through all of Soviet East Berlin and the way it was worded it there was some miscommunication and it made it sound like they were going to open the gates and they release people who wanted to from East Berlin into West and so as soon as that announcement was made thousands of people began to form around the main central gate there on East separating East and West Berlin and The leader over that gate, the one who controlled that gate, was Harold Yager. He and his men, for a period of, well, for many hours, they held back the thousands and perhaps tens tens of thousands of people. They held them back with their guns, threatening a massacre if they were approached. Continued unrest. Tensions were mounting as people tried and wanted and pleaded with them to allow them to escape. Finally, after many, many pleas with his superiors to give him some some additional help so that he could push back these intruders and prevent them from escaping. But the Stasi agents above him, they would all of his cries for help fell on deaf ears. Eventually, he was allowed to listen in on a conversation between his superior and his superior's superior. And his superior's superior questioned whether Yager had the courage or the wisdom to be even in his position. And as soon as Harold Yager heard that, he hung up the phone. He had heard enough. He, allowed, he informed his supervisor that he was going to open the gate himself. And he did. And tens of thousands began to pour across the gate and very soon began to tear down that wall. You know, the wall of Berlin fell not because of some great military action by, by Western powers... It didn't fall because of mere economic pressure being exerted upon Russia, although that was happening. It fell because of one unlikely man making a decision that was really out of his character. It fell in a way that no one expected. And yet, every freedom-loving person rejoiced in its fall. Every person who loved to see the expansion of freedom rejoiced in what they witnessed as video cameras caught the destruction of that wall and it's, and it's being torn down. And what we find in our passage in Philippians is that the Apostle Paul is rejoicing, not merely in the advance of physical freedom or political freedom, he is rejoicing in the advance of the gospel. And he's rejoicing in the advance of the gospel not because of his participation in it, not because he exerted such great influence or was able to accomplish such great things. Rather, he's rejoicing the gospel as it is advancing in the most unlikely of circumstances and even through unlikely people. And what we see by his example is that we too are called to rejoice in the advance of the gospel. It was customary in Paul's day that as they wrote letters one to another, part of that letter, uh, it was good etiquette to include a section in that letter of uh, that reported on that person's own well-being. This is how I'm doing. This is what is going on. These are the needs. These are the struggles. These are the joys that I'm now experiencing. We all know what it is to have communication etiquette most of us have forgotten what it was all that good etiquette that is supposed to happen when we write letters nobody writes letters anymore but we do know what good etiquette looks like and doesn't look like when we're writing texts back and forth right right young men and women like we know all caps is, is out of the question. Do not write in all caps. Maybe some of you have been told by your children or grandchildren, you can't write in all caps. That doesn't mean what you think it means. There's good etiquette. And see, he, he abides by that. He reports on his own well-doing. But even as he is reporting on his own well-doing, he is not reporting in the way that you think he would be expected He spends very little time talking about himself and his condition, and he spends almost all of his time talking about matters that matter. So what we see as we walk through this passage, we'll observe just some general remarks, and then we will draw out some implications from this passage. The first thing that we see very early on, Paul writes in verse 12, but I want you to know, brethren... And we ought to learn from this. Paul is, on one level, he is reporting back to them what is going on. This is a church, as Pastor Aaron showed us last week, this is a church that had partnered together with Paul. They were supporting him. They were encouraging him. They cared about him. And Paul saw his responsibility to report back. And so he says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters in Christ, this is what is going on. It gives us some input on the responsibility of a partner in the gospel to report back to their supporting churches. But he's doing more than that here. He is assuring the Philippians. He's assuring them because on one hand, they are worried about him. They are worried about him, rightfully so, as we will see. And so he wants to assure them that he is doing okay. But on another level, he wants to assure them of something even more profound more, he is more concerned with something else than his own well-being. He is, concer- he is concerned and delighted in the advance of the gospel. But I want you to know, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul's primary concern is the advance of the gospel. Paul's primary concern is to assure the people that have partnered with him for the gospel that the gospel is still going out. That's his desire to assure the people. But you see, he does describe this condition. He says, I I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, which raises a question, well, what happened to you? And he will speak throughout this passage. In verse 13, he will talk about my chains and how he is under guard by the imperial guard. Paul has been imprisoned. He was arrested for preaching the gospel and he has now been transported to Rome. And he is awaiting trial, awaiting the sentence, whether he will be freed or whether he he will be executed. Those are the only two options before him. There is nothing like life in prison it is you are either set free or you are executed and he is awaiting that but even as he is here he describes that he is being held by this palace guard by this imperial guard this is caesar's own elite guard in rome this is part of how we know he was in rome this praetorian guard was a special guard that was dedicated to guarding Caesar, his household, and the prisoners of the state there under, that had appealed to Caesar, just as Paul had. We also know later on in the book of Philippians that... That Paul, as he is writing from Rome, we we know he's at Rome because he will speak of Caesar's household greeting, sending their greetings back to this church in Philippi. This is no sightseeing tour of Rome. Peter, sorry, Paul is under chains here. He is in prison. And to be in prison in the first century isn't, isn't like now he is being provided for. He's given a set of clothes. He is being monitored and taken care of. He's given his three square meals. It was nothing like that. They were given scraps to eat if you really needed to survive. You were dependent upon friends and family which would help you. Which is why the Philippians' partnership with him at this moment is so critical. Whatever food he gets, whatever clothing, whatever help he gets, it's all going to come from outside the prison system. And so he is delighted with them that they have partnered with him. And yet we find in all of this Despite all that has happened to Paul, he still rejoices. Look at verse 18, what that, what then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In all of this, no matter how dark the day gets there in his prison cell, he is still rejoicing. His joy isn't suffering, it is thriving. Life is hard, he is not where he wants to be. And yet his joy is thriving. And it begs the question, in what then is Paul's joy anchored? And he tells us. Look at back in verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance or the advance of the gospel. And back then in verse 18, what then, then? only that in every way, whether in pretense or or in truth, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice. Paul's delight isn't in his own circumstances. Paul's primary joy is in the fact that the gospel is advancing, that it is marching on, that Christ is being made known. And he is rejoicing in verse 13 because it's resulted in the advance of the gospel to an unlikely group. We mentioned that he is under guard so that it has his imprisonment, so that my imprisonment, verse 13, has become evident to the whole palace guard, to the old Praetorian guard, and to all the rest. That is, perhaps he is speaking here to the rest of Caesar's household that he will speak of later that my chains are in Christ. Being under this palace guard would have meant that he was being regularly guarded by two soldiers at a time and they would have been on a four-hour shift, which means that as they are being cycled in and out, every four hours he sees another group of men whereby he can start sharing the gospel. And through these men, though he is trapped behind cell doors, though he is not able to communicate and preach publicly as he would, yet he is taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives him. And he declares the gospel to these men, and he, over time, is able to see that the gospel is filtering through these men to the rest of Caesar's household. More than this, it, the gospel has resulted in the advance through two unlikely groups of people. We see in verse 14 that there are some who have become emboldened by Paul's example of suffering to preach Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, they are now much more bold to speak the word without fear Their example has spurred, Paul's example has spurred them on to preach Christ. And this can be broken down into two more groups. Verses 15, 16, and 17. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. So there is one group that is preaching preaching Christ from selfish, impure, ungodly motives. They are seeking to advance themselves at the cost of Paul. So some indeed, they preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. That is, there are, while there are some who are preaching Christ from selfish motives, proud motives, wanting to undermine the authority of Paul and establish their own brand, become their own leaders, set aside and make their own kingdoms, yet others are preaching from goodwill. And then we read on, the former, verse 16, preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And I just want to take a moment real quick, because if you are using a different translation, other than the King James and the New King James, those two verses are going to be switched. That is, let let me show, let me lay it out like this. So, in the New King James, and the King James, it'll read something along this. So some indeed preach Christ from envy and strife. That's the negative. And some also from goodwill. That's the positive. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. That's the negative. And then it's followed up with the positive. But the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed with the defense of the gospel. So it's negative, positive, negative, positive. Verse 15, negative, positive. Verse 16, negative. Verse 17, positive. But if you're using a different translation, and the only reason I bring this up is because I know I'm going to get asked a bunch of times why this does this. Verse, let me read this from another translation. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There's the negative. But others from goodwill. There's the positive. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. That's the positive. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. That's the negative. So it follows negative, positive, positive, negative. Do you see that? All right. So what's going on here? Why are different translations reflecting different... In fact, what you will find is that only in the King James and the New King James will you find that former negative, positive, negative, positive pattern. And every other translations, they have, they have verses 16 and 17 switched. The reason for this is really simple. The oldest translations, the best translations... I should say the, the oldest and best manuscripts that we have are reflected in the modern translations. That is, they are negative, positive, positive, negative. We do not find an example of a manuscript of the book of Philippians before the year AD 600, so 600 years later, 500 some years later. We do not find a manuscript that has negative, positive, negative, positive. What this means is absolutely nothing is lost. All right? That's the upshot. If you want to know why it happened, well, of course, none of us was present when this first switch was made, so we, so we don't know. But the guess is something along the lines that someone thought it made better sense for it to go negative, positive, negative, positive, and so transposed, either accidentally or on purpose, verses 16 and 17, switching them. But whether it was accident or on purpose, The most likely reading is found in almost any other translation. But this isn't a big deal for us because two reasons. One, the fact that we have so many manuscripts dating so long ago gives us certainty of what the proper reading is. But secondly, you will find that there is not a single doctrinal element that is lost if we move 16 and 17 around. There's, there's no theological emphasis. There's, there's nothing of substance loss. And so your confidence in the word of God, rather than being shaken, it ought to be all the more secure because what we have in our laps is the sure war, word of God. So we are given this... this Hint, I'm sorry, verse 15 and 16 tell us these two groups. Some are preaching Christ from selfish ambition. That is, they want to build up their kingdoms. Others, they know that Paul is put by God. He has been set aside by God for the defense of the gospel. And so because of God's, because God has set him aside, they honor him. And so rather than trying to preach in such a way that's going to undermine the apostle Paul, they undermine the apostle Paul or build up their own kingdom, they preach Christ with glad and pure motives. But despite one way or the other, whether Paul is being affirmed in his message or whether he is being subtly contradicted and undermined and he is being mocked or however else he is being treated by these others, Christ, Paul is able to say that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached And in this, I rejoice. Paul's joy is thriving because his joy isn't connected not only to his well-being, it's not connected to his name. Paul is willing to suffer, and he is willing to suffer opposition. He is even willing to suffer the hatred, the, the, the scorn of others so that Christ may increase. Paul's joy is thriving. This is important because the church in Philippi is facing opposition too, both from Christians on the inside of that church and from non-Christians outside that church. In the city of Philippi had been established centuries before, but in 42 BC, about a century, a little more than a century before Paul writes this letter, a major battle took place between Roman powers outside of of Philippi. And as a result, the very first Caesar, Caesar Augustus, he named Philippi a special province of Roman military power. And as a result of that, there were certain privileges and rights that were accorded to citizens of Philippi. More than this, Philippi, because of their connection with Rome, they became a city that that worshipped Caesar. In fact, the, the imperial cult, that is the worship of Caesar, was very strong in Philippi. And one of the titles that was given to Caesar over the years and that was attached to him at this time was called, he was called Caesar Lord and Savior. In Philippi, well, Philippian Christians, they reserve the right to call only one person Lord and Savior. And so to call Christ Jesus Lord and Savior was itself an act of political treachery. It cost them economically. It cost them relationally. It cost them in significant ways. And yet, they confessed Christ. But more than this, the pressures from the world outside the Philippian church were causing the church itself to fracture and fragment. Which is why Paul, throughout this letter, he is urging them to have the same mind, to be humble, to be unified for the sake of Christ, for the advance of the gospel. And he will address in the fourth chapter, he will address these these two women who seem to be at the very heart of whatever is dividing this church. We are never told... So whatever it is, it is not a theologically great uh, doctrine that was at stake. Maybe it was theological, maybe it was a generational choice, maybe it could have been all number of things, we do not know. But what we do know, that whatever is happening here, it is threatening not only the church, it is threatening the mission of the church and the advance of the gospel. And Paul is concerned about the advance of the gospel. Andy and Colette, it has been our great pleasure to, as a church, to send you out. And now, after so many years, you guys are moving from what is known to now another unknown. There are so many possible avenues for gospel work, and yet so many obstacles. So many questions remain. And yet you have seen the Lord direct from the moment that these ideas began to come into your heart and mind, you've seen him direct you to this point. And you can be sure that where the Lord leads you, he will meet you there. And you can be sure of this, that Christ will use you to advance the gospel as you are faithful to him. It may not be, as Paul experienced, it may not be in the way that he has planned, that you have planned He will use you. And this text is important for us as a church. By his own example, Paul shows us what we ought to desire for our missionaries, for ourselves, what concerns us as a church. It is not our own comfort. It is not our own preferences. It is the advance of the gospel. This is to be our joy. And so, in the last few minutes that I have, I have six implications for, this, for us from this text. First, I'm going to move quick, all right? First, Paul's joy in the advance of the gospel will be incomprehensible if we do not value Christ or long for and desire the advance of the gospel. If the gospel does not mean anything to us, then its advance will ultimately be meaningless to us. But friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, how can it be meaningless to us? I mean, it is through the gospel that we hear and we receive this word of the Lord that, that He, the, 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 the Holy God, has created all things. And He created all things good. You and I, humanity, we have sinned. We have rebelled against Him. We have wanted our own way. We have established and worked for our, for our own goodness. We are not content with his word, content with his ways. We are selfish in our heart. Even when we want to do good, do you not find that there are selfish motivations that worm their way in? We are sinners through and through. If the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength, and then the second is to love our neighbor in the same way that we love ourselves, do you not see how we fail this day in, day out, moment by moment? This is an all-encompassing love, and yet we fail this basic command. And if God is who he says he is, if he is holy, if he is good, if he is just, we must, we must bear his judgment. The song that we sang earlier reminded us that if we were to estimate and understand our sin and how terrible it is, it is a right. We have only to look at what it costs to deal with our sin. We know how significant an issue is health-wise for us by how extreme a measure is necessary for the doctors to perform to save and help us. And in the same way, there is no more extreme action than Christ dying for our sin. The Son of God entering into the world, becoming one with us. The Son of God himself going to the cross and bearing the sins of many. The the Son of God himself, suffering in the place of sinners and the Son of God himself, rising again the third day, vindicating all that he has said and done so that all who put their hope in him may not suffer the eternal judgment of God like we deserve, yet we are promised life, not just life after life, But life upon life, abundant life, life full, life free. This is what we must value and rejoice in, the advance of the gospel locally and globally. Second, this passage is not going to make sense to us if we come at it from a prosperity gospel mindset. But as if we believe that the thing that God wants most for us is that we are going to be healthy and wealthy, then this gospel makes no sense at all. For if God if God intends that, then why is the apostle Paul suffering? It's not because there was something insufficient with his faith. It's is because that the very means by which God was going to showcase his glory and grace to the world wasn't to have his servant living the high life, but calling his servant to go to the low place and declare the glory of King Jesus there. More so, this third, this connected, connected to the prosperity gospel, this passage is not going to make sense if we approach it with a legalistic mindset. That is, if, if we think that if we will merely be faithful, if we are merely working hard for the Lord, if we are... Serving him faithfully, and if we are trying to be obedient to him in our lives, then he owes us happiness, he owes us comfort, he owes us ease and prosperity, or at least he owes us the removal of hard obstacles. We are missing the point. Paul has been faithful, he is not in prison because he has been sinful or because there is something wrong, he is in prison for Christ. He is following his master. Fourth, notice that the advance of the gospel and the furtherance of the gospel are parallel with preaching the gospel, preaching Christ. You see that in verse 12. I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. So the very end, there is this parallel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. The advance of the gospel is tied to the preaching of Christ. Clearly, the idea of furtherance of the gospel has in mind all kinds of evangelistic activity. It may merely be this this activity of sharing the gospel one to one, speaking of Christ and testifying of his grace, testifying of his finished work, one person to another but it cannot be separated ultimately from the task of preaching Christ. And Paul isn't sent merely on a humanitarian mission. That is not what missions is. Missions is not merely or primarily about doing humanitarian work. Make no mistake, we are to do good wherever the Lord places us so that the people around us will flourish, so that people may see our good works and give glory to God who is our Father so that our good works may adorn the gospel. All of those things are true, but humanitarian works are not the issue. It is not the primary thing. The primary thing is declaring who Christ is. This is what we expect as a church from our missionaries whether it is one-on-one, whether it is in a small group, whether they are able to plant a church, it is to make Christ known to individuals, to families, to groups. Fifth, the outworking of God's purposes in our suffering and trials is not always going to be immediately clear. Therefore, we must have patient faith. Paul's able to write this while he is in Rome, but he's able to write this only after he has seen the advance of the gospel there in Rome in a variety of ways. I, I wonder if the Apostle Paul, even knowing that the Lord had called him into prison, that the Lord had, he, knowing that the Lord had planned this for him, if there wasn't some frustration on the limitations that he had at some point. And yet... As he patiently trusts the Lord, he sees God working. And it's only after time passes that Paul is able to not only see this, but testify that God is indeed advancing his church, building his church, even in the midst of Paul's hands literally being tied. But none of these things could have been anticipated early on. Obstacles come and we will face them. And it is not clear how they will all be used by the Lord, but if we will trust him, if we will wait on the Lord and trust in him, acknowledging him in all our paths, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be certain that he will use us in ways that are surprising, that his work is moving forward. Sixth and last for us to find our joy in the advance of the gospel will require from us humility and a determined unity around the gospel and for the gospel. As Paul is here in prison, he is finding out that there are a group of people who have become bold now to preach in his absence. And he knows these individuals, and he knows that what they're preaching and what they're saying, how they're going about their work, they are intentionally working to undermine him. And Paul makes no complaints. Paul's joy is what? What then? That in every way, Christ is preached. Whether in pretense or in truth, I'm glad. Why? Because Christ is preached. That is humility. That is humility, and it requires humility from us. Paul was able to say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease, and he was living it brothers and sisters in Christ, if we are to partner together for the gospel, it will require us to have such humility and such determined unity as this. We do not know what was going on there in the church at Philippi. Clearly there were some differences, some divisions cropping up. But if we are to not only cling to Christ, then we must submit ourselves to one another. We must submit our preferences, our plans, our desires to one another. We must strive for unity. You get a sense of this in the very next chapter, chapter two, verse one. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. Let each of you esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in the appearance of man he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death even death of the cross. This is what we are called to If the gospel is to advance, it will be because we put ourselves beneath others. There is nothing more important in all the world than the advance of the gospel and the glory of King Jesus. So let me close with these words from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We confess that the priorities that Paul describes here are often foreign to us. We have our own priorities, our own desires, our own preferences. Oh God, would you grant us eyes to see you? Would you grant us hearts? that humble themselves not only toward you, but to one another, that we may rejoice in Christ and in what He has accomplished, what you, our God, have accomplished through Him and in Him in redeeming sinners in rescuing us. Oh, God, grant us joy, that joy of our salvation I pray that those things that so easily distract us, that sin that weighs us down, that apathy which pulls us back, that pride which asserts itself, I pray, O God, that you would empty it of our hearts as we gaze upon Christ. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to bear with one another, to forgive one another. To glory in you. To glory in the cross. Oh God, do this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.